This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, offering members-only discounts that can save you thousands of dollars a year. Find out more at carp.ca. Good afternoon, happy Father's Day, and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. Tens of thousands of Canadians are waiting for hip and knee replacements that were postponed during the pandemic, and orthopedic surgeons say it could take years to catch up. And most of us can't wait to go out, see friends, and hug our families, but psychologists warn the return to normal will also bring unease and anxiety. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. It's been a year since police officers in Colorado injured a 73-year-old woman with dementia and then laughed at the footage of her arrest. But the fallout continues. Two of those officers who resigned now face criminal charges, and they, along with the city, are being sued in federal court. And the rest of the police force is undergoing special training. The case has drawn international attention to a problem experts say is widespread across law enforcement agencies. A woman is recovering from a transplant after receiving the life-saving liver from the oldest organ donor in United States history. It came from Cecil Lockhart of Welsh, West Virginia, who died at the age of 95 on May the 4th. Lockhart's family said he wanted to become a donor after his son, Stanley, healed the lives of 75 people through tissue donation after his death in 2010. The previous record for the oldest donor was a 93-year-old. A new study suggests COVID-19 may have been circulating in five U.S. states well before the first confirmed cases in January 2020. It offers new evidence. After blood drawn from people in the earliest days of the pandemic tested positive for the infection, indicating the virus may have been circulating as early as December 2019. Some experts say the new study is flawed, but if the findings are accurate, they underscore that poor testing in the United States missed most cases during the early weeks of the pandemic. A giant mask weighing 77 pounds has been placed on a giant statue in Japan, and it won't be removed until COVID-19 is brought under control in that country. It took four workers three hours to scale the almost 200-foot statue of a Buddhist goddess to place the custom-made mask on her face, an act meant to be a prayer for the end of the pandemic. The 33-year-old statue is hollow with a spiral staircase that can be climbed to the height of the goddess's shoulder. People visit the statue, which is holding a baby, to pray for the safe delivery of babies and to ask for blessings for their newborns. Cincinnati. Frank Bonner, 
the veteran actor who became famous for playing Herb Tarlick on the TV sitcom WKRP in Cincinnati, died this week of complications from Louis body dementia. Bonner appeared in 88 of the 90 episodes of WKRP in Cincinnati, which aired for four seasons from 1978 to 1982. He also directed six episodes, which followed the misadventures of the staff of a struggling rock radio station in Cincinnati. Bonner's character was a tasteless sales manager who often failed to secure deals with major ad agencies and wore his signature white belt and shoes with loud polyester suits. Frank Bonner was 79. I'm Libby Zneimer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. Canadians are waiting longer for hip and knee replacements because tens of thousands of operations were postponed or cancelled during the pandemic. According to numbers from the Canadian Institute for Health Information, 50% of patients did not get their new joints within the recommended six-month time frame. How long will it take to catch up? I talked with Dr. Peter Ferguson, the Albert and Tammy Latner Chair of the Division of Orthopedics at the University of Toronto's Department of Surgery. During wave one, they were shut down completely for somewhere around six weeks. And in this uh, most recent wave, it was uh, probably a little bit shorter, maybe around four weeks, where they were really not doing any hip or knee replacements at all. So Kai Hai told me that 24,000 hip and knee replacements were cancelled in the first six months of the pandemic alone. So more were obviously postponed later. What does that mean in terms of clearing the backlog? I mean, this is certainly on the radar of of all the important uh, orthopedic organizations across the country, and and the estimates are that this you know could take somewhere in the neighborhood of three to five years to catch up uh, just on the backlog from hip and knee replacements alone. That doesn't include other orthopedic surgeries, uh, elective orthopedic surgeries that that were also canceled. The most common procedure is a hip replacement. So, what is the level of impairment that a typical hip replacement patient is suffering and and what's going to happen if they are waiting longer yeah that's that's a great question i mean it's a spectrum but you know there's no doubt i w- i would say the majority of people that that make it to a surgical waiting list are are severe enough severely enough affected that you know they can't undertake their leisure activities they um uh you know they maybe can't undertake their usual work activities uh you know some people are on disability uh because of uh, impairment from hip replacement people can't you know even go out and enjoy a, a walk around the block and these are generally otherwise quite healthy people who could be leading very very productive lives the challenge that we have is with this this and i'm going to use quotes uh, elective designation of of this surgery which when you compare it to things such as cancer surgery and cardiac surgery you see but if you talk to somebody who's got bad hip arthritis or knee arthritis who's suffering and may suffer for years it's it's anything but elective they they really want to get back to a, a quality of life and contribute to society and they and they certainly deserve that right the other thing to consider is that uh, you know sometimes these people are a little bit older. If you wait, let's say three to five years, as is in some situations being prognosticated, then that 
um, you know, gives the opportunity for other comorbidities to set in so people could develop diabetes uh, or heart conditions that may further impact their ability to have an operation. What's your advice to people who are waiting longer than they anticipated waiting? Yeah, I I think... uh, the best thing to do is certainly um, uh, try to advocate for themselves um, and also try to ask their physicians to advocate uh, for them. And uh, to be honest, the, I think the best people can do is go to their respective uh, members of parliament and say that this is unfair because it really is. These people should not be suffering for a long period of time. So I think go to their, their MPPs and, um, and try to advocate for themselves. One of the things that I heard even before the pandemic was that part of the problem with waiting lists is that people are signing up with a particular surgeon and waiting for that surgeon to get free when if they just said, okay, let the first available surgeon in my area do me, that would be a lot quicker. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I agree with you. I think that um, that would be a, a great way to, you know, try to so to some extent, uh, equilibrate the wait list. You know, there's no doubt that everybody uh, who is doing this operation uh, is is highly trained and highly skilled. So uh, I think that there is the opportunity for us to think a little bit more on a systematic issue about how we might be able to distribute patients. I, I will tell you, however, that I do not know a single orthopedic surgeon who does not have a wait list. Finally, you alluded to advocating. So how much of this problem would you say is money? And how much is just, you know, the availability of, of trained people? Oh, we have trained people. There's, uh, I mean, I can tell you we have trained surgeons. That's not an issue. Um, uh, trained uh, allied health personnel, so nursing staff uh, and so on. That probably is a challenge. So uh, hospitals, there's no doubt they would need to uh, hire uh, a larger cadre of, of nursing staff to be able to look after that backlog. But that then then, then does come back to the resource uh, the resources that the hospitals need to be able to do that because the salaries for nursing staff is the largest portion of the budget of most hospitals in Ontario. So it, it's it's probably splitting hairs a little bit, but I think it everything you know really does come back to the resources that the hospitals get. Do you have an ask in terms of how much more money is required? Oh, boy, I, I um, yeah, it's it's hard for me to say. I I, I must admit I haven't uh, tried to to source it out and calculate it out. But um, you know, I, I think we probably have to be willing to sort of meet in the middle to some extent. And by that I mean, um, you know, as 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 hospitals and as physicians, we're trying to do things a little bit more cheaply in order to save the system money. And and as an example, you probably read in this report that um, there's an increasing number of same-day surgery hip and knee replacements that are being done. It's still a small number, uh, but but that number is increasing, and that's because uh, collectively, as 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 surgeons and as hospitals, we see the value uh, in being able to try to keep people out of the hospital. And that's a substantial savings to the system. So I think, you know, we have to come up with creative ways to to try to d- decrease the costs for each individual case, for example, that will allow the hospital to be able to get through, you know, many more of these cases to ease that backlog. Thank you so much, Dr. Peter Ferguson. My pleasure. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That was Dr. Peter Ferguson, Chair of the Division of Orthopedics at the University of Toronto. 
I'm Libby Zneimer, and this is the Zoomer Weekend Review. Coming up, you're not alone if you're anxious about entering the post-pandemic world. You're listening to the Zoomer Weekend Review, brought to you by CARP, fighting to hold politicians accountable for better health care. Find out more at carp.ca. about going back to the office or a concert or finding yourself in a crowd or a close lineup? A recent poll finds more than half of Canadians are uneasy about going back to the way things were. I reached Dr. Stephen Taylor, professor of psychology at the University of British Columbia and author of The Psychology of Pandemics, Preparing for the Next Global Outbreak of Infectious Disease. We keep hearing a lot about people who can't wait to get back to normal to resume their activities, but there's another side of it. There are a lot of people who are anxious about it. Pandemics are polarizing in that evoke all kinds of responses. So some people become highly anxious. Some people think the whole thing is no big deal. But you're right. We are. We. It looks like there are um, a substantial minority of people who are highly anxious and and will enter this post-pandemic period with a high level of anxiety. There's a range, and I guess the extreme end of that are people who are, you're saying, are highly anxious. So how how would that manifest itself? All kinds of ways that there are all kinds of, of, of anxiety and related disorders. For some people, it will be a worsening of disorders or problems that they had before the pandemic, so a worsening of germ phobia or obsessive-compulsive disorder or generalized anxiety disorder, that is a tendency to worry. But for other people, their primary source of anxiety will have to do with what happened to them during the pandemic. So, for example, people who got very sick, who were hospitalized, who thought they were going to die, those people are at risk for developing post-traumatic stress disorder, which can become chronic uh, in some cases. What about people who had close friends or loved ones lose their lives or get very sick and, you know, there wasn't there wasn't really that uh, much of an opportunity to grieve? Yes, that's a concern, too. And there have been so many deaths during COVID. There are a lot of, of grieving and bereaved people out there and there will be in the aftermath. And the concern is that some of those people may go on to develop what's called prolonged grief disorder. And that's like grief on steroids. We know that grief is a long-term process anyway, that for many people it takes a year or more to get over the loss of an intimate or a close family member. But with this prolonged grief disorder, it can become chronic. Um, So that's another concern regarding the mental health fallout of COVID-19. Restrictions are easing. I know that there's, for some people, there are certain things they're just not ready to do. I mean, for instance, uh, last week restrictions were eased so you could have up to 10 people outside. And a colleague of mine said, you know what? I was supposed to go visit some friends. I didn't realize it was 10 people. I'm not comfortable. Mm-hmm. Well, pandemics don't end for everyone at the same time. It's not like the end of a war or the uh, the end of an earthquake or something like that. Pandemic, the ending of pandemics is messy, and they don't end for everyone at the same time. So for some people, when the WHO declares that we're in a post-pandemic period, some people will just bounce back and resume life. But for some people, they will be anxious. And just as in the example you said, 
Um, people vary in their risk tolerance, and that's an individual choice. And some people will say, hey, I don't feel comfortable going to this large gathering, even though we're allowed to. I'm going to wait and, and ease my way back in more gradually. And that's fine, too. So some people will be slower to warm up than others, but that's okay. That's okay, except if it's things they have to do. For instance, I'm thinking about there are probably workplaces that are going to tell people, you've got to come back to the office. So what do you say to a person who may not be ready to do that, even though it's considered safe? For employees, for people going back to the workplace, obviously employees need to follow their the, the labor codes, such as the Canada Labor Code, to make sure the workplace is safe and appropriate given um, the uh, restrictions or, or guidelines in place. So they, yeah, I guess employees can only do so much, but if an employee is highly anxious, then they should try and seek out, if they have an employee assistance program at their place of work, that is great. They should seek that out or or try and and seek out some mental health counselling as well. There's a kind of a push-pull because, again, people want to do what they're comfortable with. But on the other hand, it's, it's not good for humans to be isolated and not to have contact with others. You're absolutely right. And this is, this gets down to the whole issue of lockdown. This pandemic has been very stressful, um, largely because of lockdown. Lockdown is a necessary evil and it's bad for people's mental health because, as you point out, humans are inherently social animals. And if you, if you lock us in and we're not able to connect with other people, particularly physically, then that can be bad for people's mental health as well. But um, the research suggests, though, that most people are bouncing back from lockdown, although many people were feeling mildly depressed or anxious or irritable during the lockdown phase. As restrictions are lifted, people's mood generally, I mean, not everyone, but generally mood improves as restrictions are lifted. For people who are bouncing back normally, I'm, myself included, one thing that uh, I it's hard to imagine resuming is is hugging. What do you have to say about that? Is it just going to become normal, or do you expect that people will just change their hugging behavior? I guess as a community, we will um, all develop informal protocols or forms of etiquette around resuming um, close physical contact with one another. And it could be so simple as someone... uh, coming up to an elevator where there's someone in there and asking them, is it okay if I come into the elevator with you? So at least for the short term in this post-pandemic period, we will I think we will see a rise of this sort of etiquette behavior. Okay, well, that's interesting. <laughs> Thank you so much, Dr. Stephen Taylor. Thanks so much, Libby. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That was psychology professor Dr. Stephen Taylor. That brings us to the end of this week's edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Thanks for joining me today. Happy Father's Day, and be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. Zoomer Week in Review is produced by Zeev Huddy, Christine Ross, and Paul Thomas. Technical producer, Justin Eacock. Executive producer, Moses Nimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.